0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We'll turn our attention now to God's Word, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13. through 13. Please follow along with me. Paul says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-toned, Managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So this is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, even as we've all just reflected on this morning, there are many things uh, happening in the world around us, many things happening deep inside of each of us this morning as we um, approach this gathering where we come to worship you through song and through hearing of your word and through prayer, through the receiving of communion. others as we come to um, lay our lives at the altar, we just recognize that there are a million things happening in the world deep inside of us that, that seek to stir up our affections and our emotions and distraction. And Father, I pray that you would just come now and give us a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of discernment and a spirit of illumination. I pray that you would guard and protect our time together, that we might hear from your word, that we might be fed by your word, that our souls, that our hearts might be illuminated by the mirror of your word. Father, I beg you to do all those things, and I ask God that you would come and and, and even just uh, cast a a, a fresh vision, increase our vision uh, for Jesus, dying at the cross. Laying in a tomb for three days, being resurrected three days later, as our sacrificial servant leader. Father, help us to see Jesus in an increased way today. I trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the passage that we have in front of us today is basically Paul's second pass at laying out the qualifications for leaders in the church. First uh, round, which we studied last week in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, really focused on the role of elder, and then this second round today really focuses on the role of deacons. At first glance, uh, if you've read both sections, if you've been with us both weeks, at first glance, uh, both these sections seem to be uh, a bit identical, and there are things that are identical about them. Uh, but there are also uh, many things that are unique to the role of a deacon in comparison to the role of an elder. There's some identical things and there's some very unique things that we're going to see. So just laying that out, I want to uh, I want to set a little bit of a foundation maybe. Uh, set a little bit of context for us moving forward. Um, I want to engage with a few misconceptions that I think we have. Um, surrounding the topic of leadership, Uh, I have some concerns for us as a church. Um, I definitely have some concerns for us, especially in the Western church, uh, when it comes to the topic of leadership. Um, So if you'd track along with me, I've got three things I want to engage us in briefly before I dive into uh, this passage. When when we talk about the topic of leadership, um, I think we need to acknowledge our resistance to the topic. I think it's just a good place to start. I think it's also good for us to just um, admit our ignorance too when it comes to this topic. And then I also think we need to admit that there is a prevailing need, not not just in the church, but really in our culture, there's a prevailing need for qualified leaders. So I want to dive into each of those three for a minute just to help again set some uh, context. Um, uh, First of all, we need to acknowledge our resistance. We have to admit that when we arrive at the topic of leadership, we arrive at that topic with a whole subset of resistors that get stimulated when we hear the word leader. When we start talking about leadership, I think, at least for me and maybe for many of you, tiny little alarms start going off all over inside of us. These little voices inside of us that remind us of how we've been hurt or let down by people who... We're in leadership. Those little voices then begin to start to control the conversation, right? Then on the flip side of that, I think we have our own failures, our own fears, our own inadequacies in leadership that start to chime in for our attention. And then if you just take all of that combined and add in this tiny little thing inside of each and every one of us called rebellion, boy, you got a big mixed pot for disaster, don't you? I think at the end of the day, it's just hard for us because at times we just simply do not like the idea of calling someone else our leader, and we, we do not like the idea of, of someone else calling us their leader. Just, it's hard, I think. We just, there's resistance in us when it comes to the topic of leadership. Two, I think we need to uh, acknowledge our ignorance. A proverb says that where there is no prophetic vision, I hope that you'll remember this passage, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. When you cast off restraint, what happens? Destruction. We're living in a world that has casted off restraint in so many ways. That's what we see in the culture around us, is a culture full of people who have cast off restraint and therefore is living in destructive behavior. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. This is Proverbs 29, 18. And we've all heard that ignorance is bliss. Everybody probably heard that statement, but the truth is that ignorance does not lead to bliss. It leads to destruction. Wisdom is knowledge in action. And I believe that hope is the substance that fuels that knowledge in action. So vision is the picture of a preferred future, right? And if that's true, then vision is actually the substance of hope. It's the ability to see ahead with hope, that one day things will not be as they are now. But put it another way, vision, I believe, produces hope, Then I believe hope fuels the drive to attain knowledge and put it into action. But without vision, what happens? We perish in a wasteland of foolish ignorance. In regards to ignorance, now that I've spouted off what may sound like profound wisdom, I want to confess uh, what seems really painfully obvious to me, that I only know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. That sounds true, doesn't it? I only know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. I have blind spots in my mirrors. There are things that I am completely ignorant of. Like for instance, I don't know what it's like to be the President of the United States. Number one. And number two, I am completely ignorant of what it takes to lead a city through a national disaster like 9-11. I could sit here all day and tell you all about all the things that I don't know, that I know that I don't know, but on, the, on that same line, there are things that I just absolutely don't know that I don't know. Follow me? So, Okay? We are all ignorant. Now, to acknowledge ignorance uh, is one thing. What the acknowledgment of that ignorance motivates in you is quite another. Because this acknowledgment of ignorance can either motivate me towards continued ignorance, where I just stall out on the side roads of immaturity, or, I, or it, can, it can motivate me towards the pursuit of what I would call vision-fueled wisdom, Right? That, that, that to me seems like the highway of growing in holiness. So you got one of two ways you can go. Stall out or get your butt moving. Right? You can say, I don't know much about that. Don't stand on the sidelines and criticize. Right? Or I can, I can jump in and I can learn and grow. And I'm, I'm probably never going to be the President of the United States. I'm most likely never going to give birth to a baby. And I'm probably never going to lead an entire city through a national disaster. So that doesn't give me the right to stand on the sidelines and criticize when those things don't look like they're going well, even when those things might cause me some sort of harm. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines and suck my thumb, right? I've got to jump in and learn about what it means to lead. So ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not an excuse. We must acknowledge our ignorance when it comes to the topic of leadership. We must also fight for what I think is a biblical vision of leadership, leadership if we're going to grow in godliness. Finally, uh, number three, I think we need to acknowledge the prevailing need for leaders. Okay? Not only in the church, but in the culture around us. Again, I think the world we live in, in some regards, is going to hell in a handbasket. Why? Because we lack qualified leadership. That lands on all of us, especially if we call ourselves Christians. The book of Judges teaches us that in those days there was no king in Israel, no leader. Everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes? Wow, well, that's a hodgepodge of disaster too, right? Because the author of the book of Judges follows it up with saying they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How <laughs> they did what was right in their own eyes and what was it? Evil in the sight of the Lord. Ah! Proverbs says the way of a fool Is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Listen to advice and accept instruction. Why? That you may gain wisdom in the future. And these passages teach us that we are woefully inadequate to navigate the highways and the byways of life on our own. There is a prevailing need for each of us to not only be led by others, but to lead others. One of the things I've often said is that once you become a Christian, you went into vocational ministry. You became a minister. Every Christian is a minister. You may not get paid to study God's word and stand a pulpit like I do, but wherever you work, you are a vocational minister. You are a leader in God's church. So we oftentimes resist the topic of leadership because we are either ignorant of what a godly leader looks like or ignorant of the qualifications it takes to be a leader, even though there is a prevailing need for every one of us to lead and to be led. Now, um, shifting gears, uh, two thoughts, more thoughts on leadership Um, Just kind of broad philosophical descriptions. Leadership has oftentimes been described as the power to influence. I think that's generally true. The power to influence. And I want to say this. The power to influence begins with permission. Uh, Even the best self-led, quote-unquote, leaders have been given permission to someone else to influence their decisions. That's really what's happening. You're just permitting someone to influence your decision. To lead you. Whenever I resist one person's influence on my life, I am am permitting another person's influence on my life. When I say no to someone or something, I am inevitably saying yes to someone or something on the other hand. The question is, like, who do you permit to lead you? Because we don't don't live in 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 a bottle where there's no influence on our life. Uh, one other thought on leadership philosophically, so to speak. I don't think there's there's theological um, pieces to this as well. Another way to describe leadership is to say that leadership is all about servanthood. I think that's true, right? I think that's easy for us to receive. It's all about servanthood. We're not called to be, on the one hand, aggressively domineering, or on the other hand, passively neg- negligent. Okay, To be uh, an overbearing, abusive jerk, or to be a... Silent, quiet type who hides out in the back, that's still a jerk, right? Um, Both of those don't bring a service to the body of Christ. Both of those bring what we call disservice, opposite of serving, okay? Um, Jesus did neither. We do both. Why? Because we are sinful. We are called, I believe, by God, to lovingly serve one another for the mutual benefit of the church family. Not my own benefit, although there will be reciprocal benefits in leadership. Uh, to lead or to be led is to serve or to be served. Follow? I think this is what leads the author of Hebrews to say this in Hebrews 13:17: Obey your leaders and submit to them. <gasps> oh, everybody gets afraid then because, like, oh, you're telling me i got to obey and submit to somebody? Are you kidding me? I'm not going to do that, right? That's what happens inside of us, happens inside of me. Notice what he says after that, though. I mean, if you could just kind of get past that first piece when he says, hey, obey somebody and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Now, that sounds like a heavy responsibility to me. Serving each other by keeping watch over souls as those who will give an account. For me as a pastor, this has always been a heavy text. Why? Because someday I will stand in front of my Father in heaven And give an account for the way that I oversaw the souls of the people that He put in my care. He is the master shepherd; I am but an under shepherd. Right? There's actually more said in this verse that is directly aimed at leaders than it is those who are being led. He follows that by saying, "Let them do this with joy." Let who do this with joy? The leaders. Let people lead with joy, not with groaning. Not with griping, not with whining. Why? Because that would be of no advantage to you who are being led. Not very advantageous. Doesn't serve you well if you have somebody trying to lead you who complains and whines about leading you all the time, right? Like, that's that's serving me very well either when somebody leads me that way. Like, really? i got to sit down with you again and explain this, Joe? Are you that dense? Well, thanks a lot. Really serve me. No. Yes, sir. I'm passionate about this because I fail at this all the time. You know me well. I'm growing. This is why the two distinct roles of leadership here in 1 Timothy 3, I believe, are so vital to the healthy, growing church family. Elders, on the one hand, that we talked about last week, they're called to serve the church family by pastoring and shepherding the bride of Christ through spiritual oversight. And then you have these, these deacons. There's, there's only really only two leadership roles in the church that I see in Scripture. As far as I can tell, the official leadership roles you have elders and you have deacons. But what are deacons? What do they do? How do we know if someone's qualified to be a deacon? How about this question? Can women be deacons? Because we answered that last week about elders, can women be deacons? That's a touchy topic. What are the benefits of becoming a deacon? Four really great questions, I think. I want to look at those four questions one at a time. These seem to be the questions of the text Paul's trying to answer. The first question, what does a deacon do? Simple answer to this question is to say that a deacon serves the practical needs of the church family. Uh, Paul uses a Greek word here. The Greek word is diakonos. Everybody say diakonos. Good. Now you have a Greek degree and you're very dangerous. Paul uses the Greek word diakonos or he uses a variation of it all throughout verses 8, 10, 12, and 13 to describe the ministry work of a deacon. And that word Diakonos, or its variations simply mean to serve. Simply what the word means is to serve. Twice in verses 10 through 13 he basically says, if you were to actually render it rightly, he basically says, let them serve as servers. okay, Rather than let deacons serve. It's just serve as servers. Or another way of saying um, what, what he says in verse 13 is to serve well as servers. Or if you were to uh, Render this out another way. You could say, let them deacon as deacons, or let them deacon as deacons. <laughs> I said it twice. He says it twice. So a deacon is a server who serves the practical needs of the church family, much like a waiter or a waitress at a restaurant. Okay. Um, now there's some background to this, too. There's some context. You go to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and we see the apostles or the leaders, elders of the church, choosing deacons, choosing them. Choosing deacons to serve the practical needs of the widows in the church. The elders in this passage in Acts chapter 6 have rightly identified their main calling. As elders, their calling is to preach the word, minister the word, pray. That's the calling of an elder in a sense. Um, But the practical need for distribution of the food to the widows in the church was going unmet. So what do the elders do? Well, to ensure that the needs in the church family were being served well, they selected and trained and then publicly installed deacons to literally deacon or serve those needs. Uh, So the image that Luke uses in Acts 6 is literally the image of serving tables. If you look to Acts 6 too, you'll see the elders going, hey, it wouldn't be right for us to give up the preaching of the word and prayer to serve tables. We need to find men who are called to that kind of serving." So it really fits together. Deacons act like waiters or waitresses. Deacons are like buffers or shock absorbers for the immediate practical needs in the church family. It's not as though elders don't serve the church family. It's just simply the elders serve the church family in one way through spiritual oversight, okay? And then deacons serve the church family in another way through the practical needs. doesn't mean that an elder can't enjoy Serving practical needs like mowing yards and taking food over people's houses. And it doesn't mean that a deacon can't also engage and love teaching God's word. It just means that in those roles you have a primary duty and a primary role that you are responsible for. Much like if you're a manager in a restaurant, right? You have certain responsibilities as a manager, and sometimes you might need to go wash some dishes too as a manager, right? Because the need is there. It just means that's not your primary duty. Most practical needs uh, for us in the church uh, might look like the distribution of benevolence funds, might look like counseling services, or building maintenance, grounds maintenance, uh, a greedy ministry, music ministry. I don't like to call it worship ministry, I'll just caveat, but it's not worship ministry, it's music ministry, right? Worship is not about music. Worship is about the way we live our lives, sacrificially. We in the church have gotten it wrong for so many years, and we call music ministry worship ministry, and it really isn't. It's one aspect of worship ministry, just like everything else that we do in our lives. So we probably ought to change that language for us. A music ministry, a distribution of communion elements, financial management, hospitality, these are all areas of serving practical needs of the church family. Bottom line is deacons serve the practical needs of the church family. Capish? Good. Three of you, listen. Four, five. All right. Number two. Question number two. Um, how do we know if someone's qualified to become a deacon? We're going to spend a bulk of our time here because the text does. We're going to look at verses 8, 10, and 12. you You're going to be going, he's oh, skipping a verse. Just wait. Okay. Yeah, I'm skipping a verse. I'm not going to leave it out totally. I'm going to come back to it later, okay? So just keep everything together. Qualifications are vital, aren't they? Qualifications are vital. Unqualified person Positional leadership can wreak absolute havoc on a family. We talked about this last week. Take, for instance, a family's need for um, some sort of electrician or maybe a plumber to come and do some work in your home. Um, if that worker is unqualified, what's the result? It's bad, catastrophic. You don't have a vision for a qualified electrician or a qualified plumber to come to your home. Um, like the cast-off restraint, right? Everything goes crazy, prolonged issues. Further damage to your home. Danger for your family. Same is true for deacons. Qualifications must be met for a person to serve as a deacon in a church family. And Paul doesn't shy away from laying things out with clarity. Here in verses 8, 10, and 12, <clears> he <throat> says that just like elders, when he uses the word likewise, just like elders, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double ton not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Oh, that word, that's tough. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. How do we best summarize these qualifications? i going to break them down into seven separate places for us. Uh, follow along with me. I'll try to touch on each one briefly. They should be on the screen in front of you. Number one, a deacon must be dignified not dishonest. There is no room for an undignified or foolish deacon. There is no room for a dishonest lying deacon. A deacon must be trustworthy, wise, and honest. Qualification seems to make sense to me. Even for a deacon who serves on a music team. Why? Because that deacon is leading God's people to worship God through the practical administration of music. Right? Right? How can a music team member or deacon lead you in worship of God in uh, spirit and in truth if that deacon's life is on tilt, living in chaos, living in sin, and not living in truth? Follow me? So the qualification fits. Deacon's personal life must not be characterized by foolish decisions. Chaos, dishonesty, anything less. Anything less than meeting this standard of character qualification is not a service to the church family like a deacon should be doing. It's a disservice to the church family, so a deacon must be dignified, not dishonored. Got okay? it? Okay. Two, a deacon must not be a drunk. Qualification is the same as the one for elders. It's the same as for any Christian. Okay? Any person who claims the name of Christ, especially a leader such as an elder or a deacon, who professes to be full of the Spirit will not put that testimony or that story into question by being full to intoxication with wine or any other substance or any other behavior. Again, even the deacon who serves in a janitorial service in the church um, is not going to practice drunkenness because it will bring disservice to the church family rather than service. So a deacon must not be a drunk. Three, Number three, everybody say number three. Okay, just wanted to make sure y'all are still with me. I don't hear anybody yawning. (laughs) A deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. A simple uh, question here I think would shed light on this uh, principle and the seriousness of this qualification. Just ask you a question, put yourself in these shoes. Would you trust somebody to be your financial advisor, to handle your money, if you knew that he or she was being dishonest with his or her money, answer is no. I don't trust anybody to handle my money if you're being dishonest with your money. Agreed? Um, if, if you do trust people to be um, honest with your money when they're not honest with it, we probably need to have a heart check later and have a conversation. Right? And no Christian should be guilty of this. No leader is qualified To serve as a deacon if he or she is dishonest because of their greed to gain more money. Tax returns would be um, another place to look at. Are we honest on those or dishonest to gain more money from that wretched government that takes our money? (laughs) If we allow people to become deacons who are greedy for dishonest gain, then how could we ever trust them To serve the financial needs of families in our church. So a deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Number four, a deacon must hold on to the faith. And this doesn't mean that a deacon must be a studied theologian. Although it doesn't hurt, I think I'd be happy if all of us were studied theologians. That'd be really awesome. But a deacon must know and believe the very main basic tenets of the gospel and I would also say, um, in the context of the, the church, that I think you need to have a deacon who's in agreement with your doctrinal statement as well as a church. Otherwise, it would create confusion as that deacon serves people in the church, right? Um, one responsibility of every Christian is to help um, other Christians hold fast to the message of the gospel, trust in Christ in every season. Uh, deacons are our leaders who, who at times have the privilege of coming alongside other church family members during the hardest of seasons, right? How how could we ever expect a deacon to serve someone well by encouraging others to cling to Christ in the midst of suffering if that very same deacon is not doing this in their own lives? So a deacon serves the church family by holding on to the faith with a clear conscience. Um, Number five, uh, a deacon must be tested before they are trusted. I just like the way that goes together. A deacon must be tested before they are trusted. Now The only way to test someone's character is to give him or her some responsibility, right? Give them some responsibility, give them some training, give them some coaching, give them some accountability. And if they prove themselves faithful, trustworthy over a period of time, then let them continue serving in an official capacity. So tested before trusted. I think that it's a wise thing to test people with small things first, see how they serve, and if they're faithful with the small things, with the little things, and trust them with some bigger things. Right? Makes sense? Sometimes it might look like beginning with something as small as just sending a monthly email reminder to other servers with a serving schedule. Might be as simple as taking a walk through the building at the end of the day and make sure everything's all nice and tidied up and clean. Doors locked, thermostats turned off, toilet paper replaced, right? Just some small things like that before getting bigger. It might look like managing something as simple as the distribution of meals to a family in need. Bottom line the deacon must be tested before they are trusted. Don't trust someone with bigger things if they're not faithful in the small. Number six. Uh, a deacon must be faithful in marriage. For this qualification, now Paul actually uses the same phrase as he does before with the elders, where he says uh, that a deacon must be the husband of one wife. Um, they do not have to be married, and remarriage is not the issue, okay, um, in this context. Faithfulness in marriage is the issue. Now with elders, I believe, this phrase helps to solidify the restriction of the elder role to men only, Um, and there's reasons for that, Um, and we covered a lot of that last week, so you can go back and listen to that if you're you're interested in why we take that position here, Um, but as we'll see shortly here, I believe this phrase phrase in this context can be applied to both a male or a female simply because of this qualification in verse 12, uh, appears to be a continuation of verses 8 through 10. And now we get to that back to that part where you're like, we forgot verse eleven. Yeah, you're right. I did on purpose because we're gonna get there in a minute, right? So this seems verse twelve seems to be a continuation of verses eight through ten, and then verse eleven, at least the way it's rendered in our Bibles, seems to be a bit of a bunny trail. If you if you look at it, Uh, again, we'll touch on that more in a few minutes. But suffice to say, uh, I think a deacon who isn't faithful in marriage. I will not serve the church family well. How else could a deacon serve a family member who is struggling in their marriage if he or she isn't faithful in their marriage, okay? So go back to the tested before trusted. Those of us who have been through divorce, those of us who have been in broken relationships, all we need to do is take some time and test where you're at, right? i faced that in my life had faithful men and women around me um, that tested us before trusting. Faithfulness in marriage is important. Number seven, a deacon must manage their family and home well. So deacons are called to serve. Agreed? say agreed. Okay, disagree? Okay, we just want to know if we need to meet afterwards. Deacons are called to serve, right? Uh, part of serving is managing well. Um, go back to the illustration of a good table server at your restaurant. A uh, table server at a restaurant must uh, serve you well by managing the practical needs of his or her guests in the restaurant. Agreed? Agreed. Whether a deacon has children or not, I don't think is necessarily the issue here. The issue is that a deacon must manage his or her family, his or her home, well. Okay. Uh, Their home must be well kept, their bank accounts must be balanced, their bills must be paid in a timely manner, their belongings must be stewarded faithfully, their children must be disciplined and cared for emotionally, relationally, physically, and spiritually. So a deacon must manage their family and home well, okay? Um, So to go back over this uh, second question, summarize quick, a deacon can only serve in official capacity of a deacon if that deacon meets qualifications. And a person is qualified to become a deacon uh, if she or he is dignified, not double-toned, not a drunk, not a greedy for dishonest gain, hold on to the faith, tested and trusted, faithful in marriage, managing their family and private lives well. Okay? Okay? Okay. Need, 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 to, need a little conversation. Thank you for giving me a little conversation. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Good. you are doing this. We're Good. 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 Number three, question number three, can women become deacons? Track with me. I've already alluded to my position and belief that women can become deacons, but I want to take a minute and I want to try to explain why I land there from this passage so that you can test what I'm teaching. Please follow along carefully here. Verses 8 through 10, right? And then verse 12 all appear to be a list of character qualifications of anyone desiring to be a deacon. Agreed? Okay, if we disagree we can talk later. But verse 11, if you read it and it's in, in the way that it's in your Bibles, it kinda reads a little bit like a bunny trail thought in the midst of the list, at least in my opinion. It reads like a bunny trail because of the way that our English translations interpret the original Greek. Um, it, it, the way that it probably reads in your Bible, if you're doing an ESV, it's gonna read something like, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, first of all, these qualifications in verse 11 are basically a rehashing of the other qualifications that we've already gone through, okay? Dignified, bingo, was there. Not slanderous, Yes, yeah, slander is something that's very dishonest. So it fits in the same category, okay? And then you have uh, sober-minded. Well, duh, there can't be a drunk, right? Gotta be a sober-minded, thinking person. Faithful in all things. I think we kinda covered that, too. So this seems like a rehashing. Why the rehashing? Why the rehashing? Why the rehashing for uh, deacons' wives? Like, is Paul really concerned about whether a deacon's wife meets the same qualifications? And if so, then why the inconsistency with his qualifications for elders? Why didn't he mention this for elders' wives? Elder's wives don't have to meet the same character qualifications? Now, I will state that I do think that it's very good that when you're putting a married deacon or a married elder in place, that their wives do meet the same character qualifications. I do believe that. Because I think at the end of the day, these are character qualifications of any Christian. Agreed? I hope you're tracking with me. I just don't think that what Paul is doing here is laying out a qualification for a deacon's wife. Let me see if I can land the plane. It's not just there's an inconsistency. This is where I think things become clearer for me. Within the realm of Christian scholarship, on this passage, there is an alternative and what I believe to be a, a much more acceptable reading of verse 11. And it reads this way. Women likewise. Now, you might be going, my Bible doesn't say women likewise. It says wives likewise. So, are you preaching something true or not? Women likewise instead of wives likewise. Must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Here's the thing. The Greek word that has been translated wives here in our ESV, our English Standard Version, is literally the same word that is used for women elsewhere in the New Testament, especially if you just turn back to the role of women In the church, in this same book, back in chapter 2, verses 9 through 14, same word. Now, the word is, it's the same word later, also, in the next verse, where he says, husband of one wife. So, I think here, I think it's better translated, women likewise. Uh, uh, Here's one more reason that I translate it this way. Um, My understanding is that there were historians, right, at the same time that this letter is being written to Timothy. Um, And those historians are alluding to teams of female deacons, what many call them deaconesses, who were serving in the churches. And then one final piece, Paul himself, you go to Romans chapter 16, verse 1. uh, He alludes to a woman, actually refers to her as a woman named Phoebe, and I believe that she was a deacon. Here's the reason why. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe a what? Servant. The word deacon." a servant or deacon of the church. So, long story short, I've tried to compact a bunch of scholarship and chapters upon chapters and books of reading into one quick point for you. I hope it comes across clear, but the long story short, I believe, and it is the official position of our church family, that women can and should pursue the office of deacon as the Lord calls them to. Final question, what are the benefits of becoming a deacon? Now, I am personally suspicious of anyone who wants to uh, lead because of some perceived benefits they may enjoy, and I hope that you would be suspicious of that person too. Okay? <laughs> Anybody who is in it for what they get out of it shouldn't be in it right now. Okay? Not qualified. It is true uh, that many people pursue leadership roles because of some sinful desire for benefits like power and prestige and acceptance and control. Um, so knowing that, I think it's actually really cool and very appropriate that Paul actually lists Godly benefits, right? Godly benefits of leadership. It says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, verse 13. There's two basic benefits here in this verse for anyone who serves as a leader in the church. Uh, First of all, deacon who serves well gains a good reputation. Second of all, deacon who serves well grows in their confidence in Christ. Two really awesome benefits if you ask me. The first benefit seems like a no-brainer, okay? Someone who serves faithfully, you're going to gain a good reputation. That's a no-brainer. If you serve poorly or if you serve foolishly, what's going to happen? You get a bad reputation. <laughs> and I've always said <clears throat> reputation is the story of your character, and the story of your character is the story of your integrity. So just reverse engineer that all the way back and ask God to do work. Second benefit is actually very fascinating, I think. Uh, because it teaches us that as we serve well, our confidence in Christ grows. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat in the home of someone who is in the midst of great suffering, uh, or sat at the bedside of someone in the hospital, or had a phone call with someone whose marriage is on the rocks. <coughs> and in those moments, trying to serve, as I, as I desperately try to find the right words, and try to find the resources to serve them well, I oftentimes... Find them actually serving me really well through their spirit-led trust in Christ. You ever you ever find that principle to be true? As you serve someone in need, you're actually, you walk away feeling like, man, like their life is on tilt and I just feel like I'm more encouraged by the way they're walking through this, right? Strengthens your confidence in Christ. If you're, if you're slugging it out in the trenches, day in and day out, trying to to serve the bride of Christ, uh, you will definitely face extremely difficult days, right? You'll, you're going to face extremely difficult days as you, as you strive to give every ounce of your best for the good of others. And there will be days, there will be days where you will question what the Lord is up to. You will question, God, how do I continue another days when you'll be afraid to answer your phone for fear of what kind of need that phone call is going to bring and whether you can serve it well or not. And I want you to rest assured the promise of this passage is that when you need it the most, in the midst of your faithful service of his bride, because here's the thing, the bridegroom, Jesus, isn't going to leave his wife alone. That's an encouragement as you serve the bride of Christ because that's a bride that you're a part of. He promises to never leave you alone, which means he'll never leave his bride, the church, alone. Our Father is faithful. Our Father is good. On that, you can rest assured, confident, and rooted in your faith. This is the benefit of serving the bride of Christ, that you get more of. Amen? I want to conclude. Um, In conclusion, what I want to do is I want to make a couple general uh, applications to us, uh, some general applications to the church family for this specific season that we're in as a church plant. And then I want to make a specific application and appeal to each of you personally. Uh, So first, a general application for this specific season. We are a young church plant, okay? Uh, Six and a half years old. For some, that sounds old. It's not. Imagine what a six and a half year old walks like. Anybody got a six-year-old kid? Yeah, right. Uh, How does Aniline walk? A little bit tottery sometimes, right? So we're six years old. Some of you are like, yeah, but I've been following Jesus for like 50 years. We know. Get that. Get that. But (laughs) we're still corporately a -a six-and-a-half-year-old church, and that's just the way it goes. Part of becoming a self-sustained church um, that can begin to give back to the ministry of planting other churches that reach lost people is that we become self-led as we publicly select train and install leaders, right? Last week, we get to participate in some of this. We we participated in the public selection of elder candidates with Joe Nelson, Chris Shade. Uh, It was really awesome. Uh, It was a beautiful picture as uh, those two couples, uh, Joe and Eileen, and Chris and Steph got up here, and then as uh, Morgan and Eric prayed um, for them, and as as Harley and Micah prayed uh, for the other. It's just a beautiful picture of the body doing what it does, what it's called to do. Right? Um, so those men, those two men, Joe and Chris, have entered into elder training, hopefully um, would be installed. They're not installed yet, so get that straight. They've just been publicly identified, publicly selected as candidates. They got lots of training work to do, lots of papers to write, hint, hint, um, that they need to get in. Before we can actually publicly install them, so pray for those men. Come alongside them. Keep your eye on them. Encourage them as they enter into that journey. I can I can uh, promise you that the journey forward for them is not an easy one. It was never intended to be easy. We don't need people who want the easy way out to get into that role of leadership in the church, right? So they've entered into that. Hopefully, we install them as formal members uh, or formal uh, elders in the coming months. I also want to say this on, on that level of eldership. I don't believe that those are the only two elders sitting in this room. I believe that there are others in this room, at least one of the two others, that are probably called and, quali- called and, and gifted to be elders, maybe just not yet qualified in character. Character growth is slow. It takes an awful long time. I don't believe those are the only two men that are called to be pastors alongside of me. I believe there's a few others. And if that's you in here, I just want to challenge you. Like, don't run from God's call in your life. because It doesn't go well for those of us who run from God's call in our life. Just go read the book of Jonah, Okay. That said, we also want to publicly select deacon candidates. We want to train them, publicly install them, too. And there are many of you who are serving in deacon-like roles. You oversee finances. You lead women's ministry. You facilitate a GC. You care for the physical property. You serve communion, coffee. You greet. You lead kids' ministry, nursery, student ministry. You lead a music team. You oversee media production, right? There are probably some of you that I'm missing in this list that I'm making, but the bottom line is that you... Are serving the practical needs of the church family. You may wonder: well, why haven't we started like a formal training program for deacons? <coughs> why not? Um simplest answer I can give you um, is I think this is founded on the Bible. According to Acts 6, it appears that teams of deacons were selected and trained and installed by what? A team of elders. Right? Not, not one lone elder. Uh, our goal right now uh, is installing a team of elders, and uh, the next goal after that is to then select, train, and install a team, or teams of deacons under the guidance of that team of elders. So, so I just ask that you please be praying, Lord be with us as we select, train, and install leaders, this timing and in his order. So that's kind of the general application to us as a church family, helps to cast some vision. Didn't we start there? So that's the second piece. I want to make some specific application and appeal to each of you guys personally. Um, I'm going to make a public appeal to everyone here in this message. The the church body needs the most is leaders. Leaders who are called, leaders who are qualified, leaders who are selected and trained and empowered to minister to one another. Now, The church is not a spectator sport. The American church has become a spectator sport, but I can guarantee you, in my study of Scripture, the church is not a spectator sport. The bride of Christ is not a product to consume. It's not another program to get yourself... Um, part of once or twice a week. It's not compartmentalized where you're just like, man, today I got soccer, tomorrow I got church. No, you are the church. The building we meet in, this is not the church. It's a building, period. Okay? The church is made up of people that are glued together by Jesus as a family. I say all that because as I look at the church today, I believe that most people do not pursue leadership because they're either resisting the call They're ignorant of the qualifications or the call, and they're absolutely oblivious to the prevailing needs of the church family. Can I just challenge you uh, for a moment to just catch a vision for leadership that cares for the spiritual needs and practical needs of the church family? Bottom line here is that when someone resists the call to lead, or they're ignorant of the qualifications to lead, or they're oblivious to the prevailing needs of the church family, the reality is that person has a small vision of what? Leadership? Yeah, I would agree with you, but I think that that person has a really small vision of Jesus. That's the issue. Small vision of Jesus. If you gather a whole group of people with really little, itty-bitty, tiny visions of Jesus as their leader, what will the outcome be? The outcome will be an entire church family with a really small, anemic Vision of Jesus as her leader. And where there is a lack of Christ-filled prophetic vision, the people do what? They cast off restraint and fall into destruction. We see this all over the church today. The church, especially in the Western Hemisphere, I believe, worships an anemic, tiny little vision of Jesus. We've made so many other things much bigger than Jesus. I would actually say that I think that we've made Jesus into a political Jesus rather than a biblical Jesus. I think that's what we're guilty of the most in America. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Jesus came to give himself away for the sake of his enemies on the cross. Jesus came with a towel around his waist and a wash basin in his nail scarred hands. I want you to think about the people that Jesus served. He's sitting with a religious person who knows the Bible inside and out. And this woman who's a prostitute committing sexual sin all over the place walks in, right, kneels down and wets his feet with her tears and then dries it with her hair. And the religious hypocrite across the table is like, do you even know who that woman is? You have a clue who's touching you? That woman? Jesus reads his thoughts and is like, you hypocrite, you know, He who has been forgiven much will love much. Can I just ask you to catch a bigger vision for how much Jesus has served you in the way that he has extended forgiveness to you in the cross and the power that he has extended to you in the empty tomb? He died, and then three days later, he came back to life. We sang that song today. That's the hope that we have. That's the vision of how we are being led by our master shepherd, Jesus, who came to deacon us serve us through His shed blood and broken body. Do you have a small vision of Jesus today or a big vision? And what have you replaced Jesus with, your own little version of Jesus? I just call you and ask you to repent from that, please. I think what happens is if we really catch this vision of Jesus, there's just nothing that would stop us from crawling across Broken glass, hot coals, serve him by serving his bride. Deacon him by deaconing his bride. Pray that the spirit of the living God increase our vision of Jesus as our sacrificial deaconing leader. Amen. Father, as we close today, I ask that your spirit would just come and hover among us, come and brood among us, come and stir up our hearts. Father, we beg you, come and show us places where our hearts have been rebellious, where we haven't just been like resisting some topic of leadership, we've actually been resisting you, or we haven't just been ignorant of something about leadership, we've been ignorant of you and who you are. Father, we just beg that you would come and do that work. Cast a vision. Increase our vision, our picture, our hope of what you came to do among us and what you still want to do. Your broken body, your shed blood, and your empty tomb. I beg you to do that work in Jesus' name.